You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormain.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. John Weston is a seventh-generation farmer who grows 60 acres of fresh vegetables and two acres of them are certified organic. He also coaches Nordic skiing at Freiburg Academy. Thanks for coming in. Good morning. I'm interested in this, um, the fact that you've been doing the work on your farm for seven generations. Well, not you personally, but people have been on your farm for seven generations. Is that a normal thing as far as you can tell? Uh, Well, no. I think that, uh, what, in 2000, we were recognized as a century farm uh, by the uh, USDA, and at the time, I think that we were oh, the third one in Maine. So, so no, it wouldn't be, I think, something that happens every day. Uh, but we're proud of that. So, seven generations, and you still have three of them that are affiliated with the farm. Is that right? Uh, now we're down to two. Just, uh, I had a grandmother who was 104 who passed a couple years ago. But, uh, but no, now we're down to two. My father and myself. Um, and um, yeah, no, obviously we're very proud of all that, but the struggles of working with family and, and all the fun that goes along with that and uh, creates its own challenges above and beyond the fact that we're in, uh, in agriculture as well. So. Tell me about your family. Tell me how they first came to be in Maine working on this farm in western Maine. Uh, well, like most people uh, from Maine, uh, the, the roots came from Massachusetts. And um, when Maine was still part of Massachusetts, and that was in the winter of 1799, we actually we took ownership of the property in March of 1800. But we always say we were established in 1799 because it sounds better. Um, and um, yeah, it was the the typical family gentleman's farm, uh, doing the things that, to sustain the family and sustain the farm uh, throughout the generations. Uh, there were. Uh, livestock dealers, cattle dealing, um, hemlock bark was a big industry for a while. Um, and uh, but my more of the current generations, my my grandfather was a livestock dealer. So um, when all the number of farms that were in the area, um, you can kind of think of it almost as a grocery store for animals. If you were going to start your spring and needed. Uh, some piglets, um, or if you had a beef animal to sell, or you needed a replacement heifer for your dairy farm, uh, you would see my grandfather. And he bought and shipped cattle throughout New England. Um, would uh, There was a period where he shipped them from the Freiburg train station to Boston on, on train cars. Um, and uh, so as that industry began to slow down and the number of farms began to, to dwindle, um, that disappeared. And so 
my father's generation transitioned from, he still did some of the livestock dealing. And we always had uh, cattle on the side, uh, uh, excuse me, a dairy farm on the side. Um, so then my father went more into a dairy farm and my early years growing up um, through grade school, we still had the dairy. And then as that industry began to, to change and transition, we moved into crops. So most of my adult life has been dealing with uh, crop farming. When you say that most people in Maine came from Massachusetts, it's when your farm started out, Maine was Massachusetts. There was no Maine because that wasn't until 1820. So, how how was the how was it that your family decided? Oh, we're gonna we're gonna go up further in Massachusetts and and connect with this plot of land. Um, well, it, uh, I, I'm, I can't say what exactly brought us brought us up here, um, and uh, but when because everything was so mixed throughout the survey lines were, were not set, grants of land were just kind of being um, given to people, obviously um, uh, kind of uh, military generals and, and, and military personnel were being given chunks of land as, as, uh, um, as compensation. I think it was Colonel Fry who started Freiburg. Um, and actually, when, so when my, my family came here, or part of the reason they came here is where uh, our homestead is now the man that was credited for the town of Brownfield, his name is Henry Brown, was living there and, and they re-ran the survey lines from Maine and New Hampshire and found out that he was actually living in Freiburg and uh, so he wasn't about to stay in Freiburg, he was going to live in his own namesake town. Um, so quickly left and my family <laughs> uh, capitalized on that by uh, purchasing the property for I think it was $743. So, um, so yeah, kind of a roundabout way but that's how, that's how they got started. Your farm is right next to the river, the river that many people travel in the summertime, especially on inner tubes and canoes and things like that. It's a floating circus. It's a floating circus. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and this has been an interesting thing for you over the years because it also means that your farm is part of a floodplain. Yeah, uh, um, so which is obviously part of the reason why agriculture is a, a big part of Freiburg. It's not just our farm, but uh, a number of others. Um, uh, the, the Socker River divides our property and 95% of it is low-lying uh, river bottom ground which makes it excellent for agriculture but very flood prone. Flood prone. Um, and, uh, and then of course as you say there's the newfound recreation parts of it with uh, the, the canoe liveries and, and uh, the, 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 the frat party that can happen on weekends on the Socker River and we'll you know um, so, uh, w you know, we're not affected by that uh, too, too much, luckily. So, uh, um, you know, we get to hear the, the noise from it on occasion, but, um, but otherwise we're fortunate to be, to have such great ground to, to grow crops on. And this also means sometimes that when you've had um, weather extremes that you've needed to adjust things a little bit. Most recently we had the windstorm that affected us on this part of the state with trees down and power outages. And you were mentioning to me that you got a lot of, there was a lot of rain up in the mountains and came down and impacted your Christmas trees. Sure. Well, the Sauk River starts in Crawford Notch in New Hampshire. And uh, so all of that watershed winds up coming down through Freiburg. And so a lot of times we have to watch uh, the weather um, in, in New Hampshire. We'll watch the New Hampshire forecast a lot for, um, to see what's coming our way because uh, Locally, the windstorm that you talked about, uh, locally, Bartlett, New Hampshire, um, 
got between five and six inches of rain. So all that's going to be consolidated and coming our way, and it did. Um, and um, we were we had some power outages, but but the the floodwaters came up. Um, Otherwise, it would be a good time of year for us because we don't have any crops. Um, we don't have any equipment or pumps in the, in the river or anything like that other than Christmas trees. Um, so we did have debris, and the biggest culprit is actually silt. The, the, the muddy water, as it recedes, just sticks to the needles. and So now you have kind of a, a dirty-looking tree that we'll have to wash off. But that's the good part is it'll still remain growing and still be a viable crop for another year. So we haven't lost the income from it. Christmas is a big part of what you do with your farm store. When we visited there this summer, we could already see the um, the, the preceding, um, I guess, decorations, things, evidence that this is a big season. Yeah, I mean, it's part of the business model. So if you're in agriculture, um, we have a very narrow window that we can operate um, for the crops uh, on a yearly basis. So we our kind of yearly cycle is we start uh, officially in March we make maple syrup so that's the early spring income and we transition into some greenhouse crops and then uh, summer and fall aren't a problem because there's all the the, the harvest of, of those seasons fresh vegetables and pumpkins and squash and all that um, so Christmas trees provide that sort of winter income to bridge that gap a little bit I, I never grew up being a, knowing much about Christmas trees or thinking I'd be a Christmas tree farmer in any in any stretch but um, you know, it's part of the part of the pie that you have to create to, to have your business model, and and uh, it's been a good one. Um, we were fortunate to have some abutting uh, tree farms that we could um, kind of learn from, and as they transitioned out, and uh, um, so uh, it's a you know we have people that come from across New England now to to cut a tree and, and make it their family experience, and and uh, so no, it's a nice time of year. When you were growing up. Did you know this is what you wanted to do? Did you know that you were going to stay with the family business? It was always in the back of my mind. I kind of went through high school always being interested in architecture and construction and and uh, so kind of had that in the back of my mind but was still always thinking about how do you carry on the farm. Um, I mean it's there and it's present and, and um, I was never pressured to do it. Um, I'll certainly hand that to my parents. Um, they always let me choose my own way. and. Um, uh, but certainly you, you can't not kind of feel that pressure a little bit. Um, so I wanted to go into the University of Maine Orono and studying sustainable agriculture and quickly began to realize that, that most of the people that I was taking classes with didn't have any of the infrastructure that I had waiting for me and that that was incredibly unique. Um, and uh, so uh, it, it, it was there that I realized that, that yeah, I, I've got something that um, a lot of people wish they had, and, and, uh, and I enjoy doing it anyways. And um, so, yeah, returned home and, and started on the farm. And um, my, my greater winter income quickly became uh, being involved in Nordic skiing. And um, that's been my yearly cycle ever since. You and I had a conversation when I visited you on the farm about Nordic skiing because we were roughly contemporaries um, in high school, and Freiburg Academy had a pretty great ski team still does I, I believe like and to think so sure. yes of course as the, as the ski coach <laughs> right. over there and Yarmouth also has traditionally had a very good uh, ski team and it's interesting for me to think that um, this is something that you've continued to do for all of these years some people high school sports they kind of they fade into their backgrounds but for you this has remained strong uh, we were just having a conversation about this at a coaches meeting um, th that uh, 
I mean, Nordic skiing is a life sport. And uh, not that other sports can't be. I mean, there's obviously there's pickup soccer leagues and basketball and things like that. But, but Nordic skiing is certainly something that you do for a lifetime. And, and also from a high school point of view, um, certainly when I talk to a lot of the kids that I coach, um, the social aspect of it. If you play a team sport, yes, you're very close to your team within your, within your group and your school, but you never really go beyond your, your comfort zone and no kids from other schools. Um, uh, I, I still to this day have, I wouldn't say daily, but uh, monthly interaction with people that I skied with. Um, you, you meet them from, from other parts of the state, other parts of New England. Uh, Nordic skiers are generally a pretty self-motivated group, um, so they're going to go out and, and, uh, and, and accomplish a lot of things there. And uh, so, so yeah, that's, that's always something that, that's struck me is that the number of people that I know that I skied with or, or, or used to uh, be involved with the sport. And uh, um, so I certainly think it's a wonderful part of that, you know, it's an aspect of Maine, it's a niche sport. It can struggle at times, you know, in the state of Maine as, as interest change and school budgets change. But uh, it's, um, we, we like to say that a lot of the kids that we're coaching are then going to go on and support the industry, whether it's through buying season passes or being a shop manager or groomer. Um, so I hope it can certainly th continue to thrive t despite the climate at times. Uh, we can't make snow the way um, other ski areas can. So. Uh, it's been a struggle for certainly for some of the teams in southern Maine. So. Yeah, I, I mean, even back when I was in high school many years ago, uh, the the climate still didn't permit for snow on the ground consistently um, every single winter. So was, we actually would often travel to Freiburg or um, Sakopee Valley or other western parts of the state to ski. And one thing that is interesting about skiing is that it keeps, um, well, coaches and students outside. It keeps you in, an, in a time of year when people are generally wanting to just hunker down. And um, my son played basketball, my daughter played basketball, my other daughter ski, uh, swims, but I was a skier. So I was out there in those elements and it really does keep you connected to the, to the seasonality of the state. Yeah, it's an outside winter activity. I mean, and, and it has those challenges. And, and um, certainly a, a sport that has affected skiing in Maine is indoor track, um, which is another just indoor type of sport. Um, but no, as I, as I said, it's a, it's a self-motivated group. A lot of times the kids that, that I'm coaching um, or that we're all coaching are the student council president or they're involved in a lot of music and plays and all that. And, and um, so that, that drive helps overcome some of that that yeah, I'm going out in the winter and and putting on a, a race suit and and um, going through those challenges. But uh, um, you know, locally here, uh, you know, I think the Portland area certainly enjoyed Pineland. Um, they've done a wonderful job of of uh, keeping that sport local um, and not having to travel quite so much. Um, from from Freiburg's point of view, we're kind of just on that cusp of the snow belt. Um, so a lot of times, in fact, there was a couple inches on the snow this morning when I, when I drove down here and, and drove out of it fairly quickly. Um, but um, it, it's nice that for our league, an hour away, we can have pretty much guaranteed snow. So. This, this self-motivation that you're describing, I would imagine this would be fairly important if you are going to um, be a farmer, if you are going to work with your hands in uh, an industry where there's, there's some built-in uncertainty with things like 
weather, for example, or market forces. So how have you used this internal motivation to continue to um, work in this business? I can't lie and say it's it, it's a bit of a hardening process. I mean, it's li- it's 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 life. I mean, life is a hardening process, and um, certainly as I've had to go through some some natural disasters and things that have affected our farm, um, you it's scary. You don't know how it's going to to play out, um, but you have to have faith in your business and and um, your family and um, that you can that you can work your way through that. Um, and uh, I certainly. I feel that from my point of view that um, you know you're you're better on the other side of it you don't like going through it at the time um, but um, no I, I, I think you have to you have to have that that toughness that understanding that um, you know the hard work and you'll get through it there's also a very strong sense of being connected to the community that I think your farm um, participates in. Last summer, one of the reasons that we went down there is that you reached out and invited us to your community dinner, which um, was was delicious. Um, all the local vegetables. I think you sent me home with an enormous bag of corn, which was probably the best corn I've ever had, by the way. So that. wonderful there. Um, but also really impressive was the number of people that showed up to sit and uh, essentially break bread together. Um, that dinner's covered a lot of, uh, the, the one that you came to was our fourth. Um, uh, it's covered a lot of ground for us, both um, personally, um, as you say, to, to give back to the community, to, uh, to have that feeling of, of bringing everybody together for a, a simple, easy cause. Um, it's been wonderful from a business point of view, because as you stated, um, it's a time of year we can showcase our vegetables. We, we see a large bump um, in the, the preceding weeks when people are coming in to, to buy some of those products. So uh, that was kind of an unintended benefit, but it's, uh, it's been very nice. Um, that all started when, uh, I think it was a, there was a, a PBS show called Outstanding in the Field. I don't know if you ever heard that, but that I think kind of put farm to table dinners um, Kind of more in the in the forefront, and our our local chamber decided that they would get together a few of local farms, and we would do one of those. And they were nice events, and and we all it, it worked out very well. But what stuck with me was the pricing of it. Um, very expensive uh, ticket. Um, they were made to be very exclusive, and uh, I think that that's a formula that you see a lot of other people use now. Um, that these are very very high end events which is fine, but to me, it's sending the wrong message. It, it's saying that, that local food should only be available to those that can afford it, um, and that's not what I wanted. And um, so from that, we did that for a few years, and, and then that, that petered out a little bit, um, and then we had Hurricane Irene, and I believe it was 2012, getting back to our flooding conversation. Um, that was a flood that came at the absolute worst time of year, which was the end of August. And uh, that's when we had our highest crop. Um, we're just getting uh, all of our summer crops are in full, full harvest. We're just getting ready for our fall crops. Um, and they were all underwater. And effectively, we had to destroy all of it. Um, and as much as that was a tough hit for us, um, personally, there were a number of other farms that were, that were uh, affected the same way. And what struck me was that 
there was a lot of food lost for our community. And a um, hundred years ago, that would, would, have been a, would have been major. But in today's world, um, you can just go to the grocery store. And so people otherwise wouldn't really know that. They wouldn't, yes, um, you can go and get your tomato. It may not taste as good as the one that you'd get locally, but you can still have it. Um, so from that, um, I wanted to try to do something that's, let's say, let's kind of bring something back to the forefront here where, where we can just focus on this. Um, and uh, I'm fortunate to be uh, friends and associated with um, Carol Noonan and Stone Mountain Art Center. And uh, we were out to dinner one night and started, Carol's a, a forward thinker as well. And, and uh, we kind of were just throwing things around and we said, well, what if we did our own dinner? And what if, what if we charged nothing? What if it was just free? Um, and um, we, we said, well, what about numbers? And well, how about 500? Um, and so the very first year, that's what we did. Uh, we did a, a completely free meal. Uh, we provided the vegetables and, and we brought in a few other like-minded people, uh, the Oxford House Inn in Freiburg and, and people that could help us out and um, couldn't have asked in any outside event like that. We had great weather and I can't, I'd, I'm sure that that, how many annual events have never happened a second time because they had bad weather. We had great weather, the, the event went great, and um, we just couldn't have asked for anything more. Um, and people have really, they've responded to it in a number of ways. They're not just the being gracious towards uh, that it's free and you're bringing the community together, um, but part of our formula was there's no speeches, there's no 50-50 raffles, there's no silent auctions. Uh, we didn't want that. We want you to just come and focus on one event. And, and we actually, the first few years, we actually had kind of some, I wouldn't say backlash, but people saying, you're not capitalizing on, you know, thing, you should put out a donation box for this charity. We're like, no, 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 uh, that's not what we want. Um, and it's it sometimes is amazing to even hear people's reaction to that. They almost don't know how to handle it uh, because our world is so complicated. And where do you go where you're not bombarded? You can't watch the news without things scrolling across the screen and everything else. So um, the, the formula was just to be very basic and very simple and it's worked well. One of the things that I enjoyed about our meal is that we sat at a picnic table with people that we had never met before who were uh, nice enough to, to offer us a, a place at the end of the bench. And we got to talk to them a little bit about where they were from and um, how they came to Maine and um, how they came to the farm in particular. And it just, it struck me that that's not an opportunity that you get very often in this day and age to sit down with people for no other reason than they, that they're, they're next to you, that they offer you a place. You know, we go to the restaurants and we sit by ourselves oftentimes, or, you know, we have these very self-select populations that we kind of work within. Has that been an unintended or maybe an intended consequence of the dinners that you're offering? Sure. I mean, we, we weren't exactly going into it. Um, we weren't exactly sure how, how it was all going to play out. I mean, uh, um, just the logistics of it to start with, we weren't sure what 500 people was, was going to look like. Were they going to come all at once? Was it going to get spread out? Where do you seat them? Um, all of those things. And, um, and part of also what we did is it's something that I would like to do for a while. I, I, I don't like the concept of doing something like that as a flash in the pan. Um, it's something that I wanted to do for a while, so we wanted to keep keep it simple, um, and but parse also um, not do it every year, and I think that that's a big part of it. So um, 
if if we were, we've been doing it every two years. And what that does is it, it people can't say, well, I'll just go next year. Well, you can't go next year. You got to come this year, um, and puts a little higher priority on it. And um, and so th- what we've basically been finding is that people will come. If we we offer it for a two-hour window, and that people will come and they'll stay. And to have the experience that you talked about, um, which which we wanted, but we weren't sure what what it was going to wind up being. Um, but no, they, they, they can come and they can talk to people. And some of the nice comments that you hear is, um, you know, I grew up with this person and we live in the same town and I never talked to him. And, and we talked for a half hour the other night at your place. And, and um, so, yeah, those are the small little victories of, that, that you like to see the uh, unintended, unintended benefits. That's also a nice reminder that um, the food can really shine on its own that it was obviously very well and lovingly prepared by Carol and the rest of the people that offered the dinner. Um, But when you're eating fresh corn or when you're having, I think my favorite part was maybe the the maple syrup on the vanilla ice cream, which I don't think I've had since I was a kid. Um, You really can, you can just taste the food in a way that's different than um, when we go out places and it gets, you know, dressed up or made to feel kind of fancy, I guess, which is also good. It's just different. Yeah, it can be overprepared. And that's another kind of, con- uh, uh, not consequence, but reason for for what we came up with. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll be the same way. I don't want to eat that plainly every single night. Um, but, but part of what we were offering were um, sweet corn. Yes, we have butter, but a lot of people don't even use it. Um, raw carrots. Um, some basic basic salads and, and, and things like that. Uh, I remember one of the, we had a farm meeting once and um, they just brought out a plate of, of fresh asparagus. And you often forget about how, how good something is just on its own. And if you're gonna go out to a restaurant, yes, you, you kind of feel like it has to be prepared a little bit more for you. Uh, so I understand those formulas. Um, but, uh, but no, that was definitely a, a part of it is, is that we want to have the, f- the focus be on the food and it's easy when you get um, restaurants and chefs involved that they they want to add their touches to it and and uh, and and increase that part of it. And that's why I say, with Carol at uh, at Stone Mountain and Jonathan at the Oxford House, like-minded people, they understood very quickly what the concept of this was. And there's never been any sort of uh, kind of internal fight that way. One of the things that I continue to hear about from people who have lived in Maine a long time is um, the necessity of um, having different things that they do as income streams. And this is something that we have really never given up on. As a, as a community, many of us are doing more than one job. And this is certainly true in your case. You have a farm, but you're, you have a farm that sells Christmas trees and you sell sweet corn in the summer and you also work as a Nordic ski coach. And that's just it seems to be the nature of it if you if you choose to live in a place like Maine. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish that that could translate more um, into a seasonal workforce. Um, you know, like any small business, our number one problem is is our is our labor source. Um, and uh, if there was a m- more of some sort of established um, seasonal workforce that could move from the farms and the summer tourist industry into um, you know, the ski industry. Um, and a lot of that's based off healthcare. I mean, people have to have those, have those benefits. And, uh, so I understand that, but, um, 
you know, labor is a big problem for any small business and especially for, for a farm, uh, a seasonal farm. Um, we close our doors for the first quarter of the year. So uh, we go from maybe uh, a payroll of 18 during the summer to zero. Um, and that's a, that's a big challenge for, for, a, rural, for a rural state. Um, well, maybe as we have these conversations, things, solutions will continue to bubble to the surface. We haven't <laughs> solved them yet, but it seems like maybe you've already even identified one. Ski industry, farm, there's got to be some ways that this can be approached that maybe we just haven't thought of yet. You would hope so. I mean, we've, uh, you know, I'd be very open that we have, uh, we have two Jamaicans that come and work for us. They've been with us the same, the same men for, for, for 10 years. I mean, they're, they're like family to us um, that are part of a federal visa program. Uh, this year we had two girls from Romania as part of the J-1 visa program. Um, both of those programs are being discussed in the bigger government. Um, and so we have to watch that. And, um, but the, 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 the truth is, is that a lot of the main workforce is, is uh, or a lot of the main businesses are, are dependent on foreign labor. Um, that can easily get into a larger societal discussion, um, but but no, those are those are the the facts of reality, and and it's something that we have to deal with. And you would never think that as a small farm um, that I'd have to be up on the current immigration policies, um, but I do, and um, it, it's it's another another ruffle of of being a small business. Well, I appreciate the work that you're doing. (laughs) I know that it's complicated, (laughs) and I know that you have to think in uh, in small ways and big ways on a regular basis. But I do appreciate it, and I appreciate your um, having us as guests this summer at your farm dinner. And hopefully, we'll make it down not next summer, but the summer after that. (laughs) Two years. (laughs) That's right. I've been speaking with John Weston, who is a seventh-generation farmer who currently grows 60 acres of fresh vegetables out in the Freiburg area. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music are by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producers are Paul Koenig and Brittany Cost. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.